Fresh back from the road, I'm Adam Wright. Happy to be with you on a Monday morning for Roadmap to Heaven on October 30th, the eve of All Hallows' Eve. And, uh, well, maybe we'll talk a little bit about that today. I will say this, it has been an incredible weekend and I, I look forward to sharing that with you, but let's first pray this morning. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory, uh, well, let's pray that. We can give glory to God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end, amen. O Jesus, through the Immaculate Heart of Mary, I offer you my prayers, works, joys, and sufferings of this day for all the intentions of your Sacred Heart in union with the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass throughout the world in reparation for my sins, for the intentions of all my relatives and friends, and in particular for the intentions of the Holy Father. Amen. We dedicate all of our thoughts, words, and actions to the greater glory of God in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I am fresh back from the road. Uh, It was a beautiful, beautiful weekend Saturday was spent in Springfield, Illinois, in downtown Springfield at the Bank of Springfield Center for the Diocesan Eucharistic Congress with talks from Scott Hahn, Father Dennis Robinson, Father Chase Hilgenbrink, Sister Mary Carolyn Nunes, and an exquisite, beautiful, inspiring homily from the Bishop of Springfield, the Most Reverend Thomas Paprocki. What a great, great day it was. I have to tell you, you know, I got up in the morning, I grabbed, grabbed a cup of coffee at the gas station, uh, topped off the tank, and hit the road to Springfield about 7 a.m., and as the sun was coming up over the Illinois Plains, it was just gorgeous. It was a beautiful drive, and I thought, wow, what a blessed start to the day. Then I get there, I'm setting up, there's a fervor in the air, the volunteers are buzzing, the last preparations are being made. Scott Hahn walks by to go do an interview with uh, my, my friend Andrew Hansen, who's the communications director for the Diocese of Springfield. He hosts Dive Deep, which uh, is a podcast and a video series. Sometimes we're, we play some segments from that for you on the show here. They're very generous to share that content with us. And then next thing you know, Dr. Scott Hahn's with me at our table, and I get to sit down with Dr. Scott Hahn, and I thought, you know, this is just the beginning of the day, and this is fantastic. It's only going to go up from here. Well, it did. And then it culminated with Mass with 5,000-plus Catholics, 100-plus priests, the bishop, a choir that was just gorgeous. I was in tears at the beginning of Mass, standing in the back of the arena as the entrance procession was going, and the choir was singing the organ, the, the brass. The, it was just overwhelmingly beautiful. And all, why? For our Lord, present in the most blessed sacrament in the Holy Eucharist, body, blood, soul, and divinity. Everything done that day was done with such great care for our Lord. For our Lord. And amen is all I can say to that. Of course, being out driving home in the rain and not getting enough sleep and allergens being what they are, I apologize if I sound a little off with my voice today. It's uh, It's been a fun weekend of recovery from that as well. We're going to hear a homily today from Father Hollowell. The devil doesn't want you here. It's about coming to our Lord with all your burdens and getting rest and inviting someone to the, visit the church or the Adoration Chapel. We're going to be talking about the Blessed Sacrament today. We also uh, had a chance to sit down with Monsignor Jason Gray from the Diocese of Peoria. He's the executive director of the Fulton Sheen Foundation. And uh, we were talking about what Fulton Sheen would say. Our 
Archbishop Sheen would say if he was at the Eucharistic Congress, what he would want us to know. And then finally, we're going to hear from Dr. Scott Hahn, not from the Congress. I actually had the chance to sit down with him last week and talk with him about his newest book, Catholics in Exile. That's all ahead on the show. First, let's get a look at the weather from Mike Roberts, as well as our Saint of the Day. Today is the feast day of St. German, Bishop of Capua. Born in southern Italy in the late 5th century to Amantius and Juliana, his father died and left him an inheritance which, with his mother's blessing, he sold, giving the money to the poor. He became a priest, and then, when Bishop Alexander of Capua died, he was elected to replace him and reluctantly accepted. Immediately, he was drawn into an ongoing fight in the battle against Acacianism, a heresy supported widely in the Eastern Church that did not accept that Jesus was both human and divine. This schism, unfortunately, was the beginning of a split between the church in Constantinople and Rome. However, in 519, German was sent by Pope Hermistus to meet with the Byzantine Emperor Justin I and was able to negotiate a solution that at the time kept the two churches from separating. German also had a hand in the process of determining the correct date for Easter. He died in 541. St. German, please pray for us. I'm meteorologist Mike Roberts for Covenant Network. Have a blessed day. Saint of the Day can arrive each morning by subscribing on your favorite podcast player. Search Covenant Network to see all our podcasts. Daily Offering God the Father, I thank Thee for creating me. God the Son, I thank Thee for redeeming me. God the Holy Spirit, I thank Thee for sanctifying me. Infuse into my thoughts, words, and actions Thy grace, so that they may be supernaturally pleasing to Thee and supernaturally rewarding to me forever. O Blessed Trinity, Abundantly assist me in becoming that which thou intended me to become when thou created me. For in thy perfection I will give thee the glory thou desirest of me, and in that perfection I will find my greatest joy in heaven. Amen. We were so excited to see so many great friends this past Saturday at the uh, Eucharistic Congress, and Looking ahead, I knew that some friends from up in Peoria at the Fulton Sheen Foundation were going to be there. But as it happens at these events, you know, they were there to present on behalf of the Sheen Foundation and the, the Catholic uh, market and makerspace and information area. We were broadcasting. We, we knew we weren't going to get a chance to sit down with one another. So we said, well, let's, let's have a little Zoom call before the Congress. And then if we have some time, we'll be able to air it. And uh, we weren't able to air it on Saturday, but we are able to bring it to you this morning. And it's just some wonderful thoughts from Monsignor Jason Gray on what Venerable Servant Arch, uh, uh, servant of God Archbishop Fulton Sheen would say about our Eucharistic revival. Because, wow, didn't he love our Lord and his presence in the Eucharist. So let's give a listen to that conversation. We're happy to be talking with Monsignor Jason Gray, Executive Director of the Fulton Sheen Foundation, as well as a priest of Archbishop Sheen's home diocese, Peoria in Illinois. And in this time of Eucharistic revival, Monsignor, it's very good to have you with us to talk about a man who loved our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. Good morning to you. My pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. When we talk about Eucharistic revival, Archbishop Sheen is a very natural fit for this. If I remember correctly, did he? Uh, he passed away in his chapel at his residence. He did. He did. It was part of actually a long-term commitment that he had made going back to his ordination of making a Eucharistic Holy Hour every single day. 
And so it was on December 9th, uh, which was a Sunday, December 9th, 1979. And uh, he was found in his chapel. That was where he passed away uh, that evening. So he was at prayer even to the very end. Now, our interview is in the context of the Eucharistic Congress in the Diocese of Springfield, one diocese south of you. And it's one of those things I've been thinking about is, you know, if, if Archbishop Sheen were still with us, and he was at an event like this, what would he be saying about Eucharistic revival here in the United States? Well, I, I think he'd be very uh, thankful for the leadership of Bishop Paprocki. I think that's a, a great witness that he's giving and drawing attention to the Eucharist. Um, Sheen was someone who um, not only spent a lot of time in front of the Blessed Sacrament, but I think for him, this is also part of the way in which he got to know our Lord very personally. Um, Sheen was someone people would oftentimes remark at how much he knew about Christ when he, especially in his uh, life of Christ, he would have insights into the gospel, insights into the perspective that our Lord had. And we can ask ourselves where those insights came from. And you might say that he was someone who had uh, been say so well educated, it was probably came from his, his training, his, uh, the, the universities, the European, the Roman universities he was at. And I don't think that's the case. I think he learned a lot about Jesus. He learned a lot of theology there, but I think the insights that Sheen had came from knowing Jesus personally. And that I think occurs when you're in front of the Blessed Sacrament. There's just nothing I think to substitute for that face-to-face -face meeting with our Lord in a spiritual encounter, um, not just spending an hour in prayer each day, but an hour in front of the Blessed Sacrament. That's I think where his personal knowledge of our Lord really came from. Uh, something that was uh, something it was clear was intimately part of his life, um, his prayer life, and then part of his his intellectual thinking um, that, that uh, derives so much from those insights. That sounds like, you know, step number one would be make some time each week to go spend time in the Adoration Chapel. If nothing else, go spend time in the church where our Lord is present in the tabernacle and just spend some time in the quiet and let our Lord speak to your heart. Yeah, Sheen, Sheen actually had a line about that when he would talk about prayer. He says, it is important to spend time listening because he says, remember the uh, the prayer that was said by Samuel um, when he was in the temple in the in first Samuel said he was told to say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. He did not say, listen, Lord, for your servant is speaking. It's a great line that Sheen, Sheen uses, very, very humorous line that is there. I love that. I might have to borrow that one going forward here on on our airwaves, uh, because how often do we get that reversed? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One of the interesting things about Archbishop Sheen that I did not know until I went to the museum up in Peoria, which is a great place to visit if you're if you're looking for a good day trip and you're in the area, um, was that he was biritual. Not only did he celebrate the Mass mm -hmm. in the Latin Rite, which I've grown up with, which uh, as Roman Catholics we we've all grown up with, but he was also in the Byzantine Rite as well, correct? Yeah, yeah, it was amazing. Part of that, I think, is associated with the fact that he was so well-known throughout the world and such a world traveler. Um, so he really had experiences of the church, um, not just in the, the Latin Rite, not just in the United States, uh, but especially working with the missions. This would be from, from really all over the world, and especially in remote parts of the world where other rites, other um, ritual churches would be present. So yes, he was uh, had a Byzantine connection and uh, actually did have biritual faculties. Well, this is absolutely wonderful uh, to hear all of these things. And, and I want to go back to just the very first thing we said is that the core message is have a relationship with our Lord. I mean, we, we said practical step one, go spend some time with him, but the goal is relationship. And I wonder if there are some teachings of Archbishop Sheen that uh, you could share with us that just highlight the importance of that. Why it's not enough to just know about Jesus, to, to read the catechism, but to have that relationship with him. Yeah. One, one of the things that Sheen would talk about 
um, is when it came to the Last Supper, and this is the time in which uh, the Eucharist was instituted, so it's a very important moment. We think about that connection to the Eucharist. And that evening, and it was also a connection with the cross because he's getting ready to offer up himself, but that evening he gave to the disciples a command. Now, one of the commands that he gave them is he says, do this in memory of me. So take and eat, These are, that was a command. But that wasn't something that the disciples were supposed to do that very night. They would do that later when they would celebrate the Lord's Supper. There's only one other command that the Lord gave to the disciples that night, and it was something that they were to do and to fulfill that night, and it was this. It was watch and pray. Could you not watch for one hour? So it's it's interesting, of all the things that he asked of the disciples, you know, I want you to do something heroic. I want you to serve the poor. I want you to do all. No, he didn't ask any for them him to do any of those things. He says, pray, pray with me. And I wonder if at times, if we don't really underestimate the the real value of prayer, that, um, you know, a lot of times I think this is maybe an American mindset, maybe it's a Western mindset. We always want to do things. So how do we fix the church? How do we build up the church? How do we bring people back to mass? How do we bring the faith, you know, strengthen the faith in, in the hearts of people? Well, we need a program. This is our, I think, our response. We always need to institute some initiative. We're going to take some action. But I wonder if, in fact, there isn't more to be said just in spending time in prayer. That quiet time in prayer, I think, may accomplish more than we could imagine, and maybe even more than a million programs all put together. Um, Sheen, I think, had a great belief in this, is, is that he would pray for people, he would pray before our Lord. And the truth of the matter is that when we pray before the Lord, we're, in, we're asking the Lord to work, and the Lord works a lot better than we do. So I, I wonder if this isn't a great insight that he would bring to us. We often talk about that via media that we enjoy as Catholics. We're not extremes one side or the other. And I think of that Benedictine motto, ora et labora, work and prayer. And if we're too far on the work side, we're out of balance. If we're so far on the prayer side that we're not doing the work we're called to do as the lay faithful, uh, we're also out of balance. It's a both and not an either or. Monsignor Gray, it's yeah. been fantastic to visit with you to hear just a, a few insights. I know there are so many. We, we could talk for hours. Uh, we could read any number of books. I, I think he's written over 60 books of memory serves yeah. about the Eucharist, about the Blessed Mother, about any number of things to grow in holiness. For our listeners who would like to know more about the Sheen Foundation as well as possibly make a, a trip to Peoria to see the museum or to pray at the tomb, where can they go for more information? The best uh, information, uh, the best things for people to do if they're coming to Peoria is to visit the tomb, which is at the cathedral, and two blocks away to visit the Sheen Museum, which is in the pastoral center. All of that information is at celebratesheen.com. That would be the best place to go for more information. Wonderful. Monsignor Gray, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. What a great time that was to sit down with Monsignor Gray and have that conversation. We're going to take a break here on Roadmap to Heaven this morning. Here's Matt Maher with Jesus, My Everything. When we come back, we're going to hear from Dr. Scott Hahn. Prayer of St. Clair of Assisi. God of mercy, you inspired St. Clair with a love of poverty. By the help of her prayers, may we follow Christ in poverty of spirit and come to the joyful vision of your glory in the kingdom of heaven. We ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. 
We are happy to have with us on Roadmap to Heaven this morning Dr. Scott Hahn. You know him. He's a biblical scholar. He's a professor at Franciscan University of Steubenville, Ohio, founder and president of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, noted author. And uh, Dr. Hahn, I have to say, though, I think the things I enjoy the most, as much as I love your writing, I love your videos, the work you do, I love when you share pictures of both your family and the joyous events happening in your life, and then also the dad jokes that you share on your social media. Uh, from one father to another, I am a big fan of the dad jokes, and I may or may not borrow them from time to time. Well, Adam, it's great to be with you, and you and I both. I mean, the the time with family, the pictures of our family after 44 years of marriage with our six kids and now our 21 grandkids, I think back to, you know, all of the books that I've written, the classes that I've taught, the places I've gone, the lectures I've given. None of that comes close. I mean, if you stack it all up, it doesn't come close to the satisfaction, the fulfillment of raising a family. (laughs) And I'd also say it's much easier than raising a family, all of that stuff. Well, the Bible comes with biblical commentaries to help in your writing. Uh, most children do not come with a commentary specific to that child and how to raise them. And uh, no, so they don't, do they? I mean, they don't even come with a basic manual on the care and feeding of this one or that. <laughs> no, no, they do not. Well, I, I mentioned this, Doctor Han, because recently my wife and I had a wonderful opportunity to escape together, and we went down to Birmingham, Alabama, for a radio conference. But as part of that, we spent a day at the Shrine of the Most Blessed Sacrament in Hansville, Alabama, a beautiful place. Listeners, if you've never been there and you're driving anywhere near the Birmingham area, make the time to go to the Shrine of the Most Blessed Sacrament. But I I don't know about you. When I travel, I never sleep well in the hotel. The pillows are never right. I I just want nothing more than to be back home in my own bed. Um, We miss the kids terribly. We were only gone for three and a half days, and we missed them terribly the entire time we were gone. And yet in the midst of all of that, as much as I enjoyed seeing the radio colleagues, hearing beautiful talks from two wonderful bishops and some other uh, wonderful priests and, and lay faithful, the most comforting moment for me, Dr. Hahn, was during a free period in the afternoon, just sitting in the Shrine Church in a moment of adoration, nothing particular being said to us, nothing particular on my mind other than, Lord, I'm just tired, and I'd like to be home, and I'm not home, but you're here, and that's also a good place. And it was probably the most restful 20 minutes of the entire day was just spent with our Lord. And I mention that because your new book, Catholics in Exile, Biblical Wisdom for the Journey Home, talks precisely about this, that we are citizens of a home, but we're in exile especially today in the culture we're living in. In fact, from the the book itself, we we read that from the day the gospel dawned in the world, Christians have occupied a remarkable place, citizens of heaven, but heirs to the world, loving the world, yet persecuted by the world. The message of this book is at once bracingly realistic and hopeful. Christians today are living in exile, but Christians have always lived as strangers in a strange land and have nevertheless prevailed. And a timeless message, but calibrated here precisely for our time, uh, you have some great words of wisdom for us. And I wonder if we could start there with that question of, are we, are we really in exile? And what does that mean to be in exile? And, and I suppose the follow-up to that is, well, if we're in exile, where are we supposed to be? Where is home? 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know how you could have possibly framed that better because, I mean, you and your wife going down to Hansdale, down to EWTN, down to the Shrine, I mean, it's so beautiful. And at the same time, it illustrates how we are not at home when we're on a pilgrimage, and yet at the same time we have this deep longing for home. But when we get back and we settle down and we pray, we get a gentle reminder, a sort of divine prod, saying, you're still not home yet. And that is what we have throughout our lives. But at this particular moment in history, I think it comes with a certain barb, something that is sharp and painful at times, that we live in a culture that was once possibly construed as Christian, but now it's post-Christian, if not anti-Christian. And so we have a unique situation that we think is more unique than it is, that, you know, we're striving to be virtuous as citizens, as Christians, and yet we're afraid of our leaders, our government rulers. And that's not only true for the secular government, it's also true in a sense that people feel alienated from their own spiritual leadership within the Church. And so at this moment, we have a wake-up call. And when we awaken, we'll discover that uh, those who are feeling like they're living in exile, alienated from the culture, perhaps even from the Church, we need to seek a, a productive, a positive, a constructive response. And the first thing is to recognize that this is not a new reality, that the biblical portrait of the people of God has always been one of an earthly pilgrimage, one of living in exile. And so what I'm doing in this book with Brandon McGinley, my good friend and co-author, is we're writing a book that both of us really felt the need for. You know, in the past, I have recognized the need for certain books, like The Lamb's Supper, to awaken in Catholics that sense that when we go to Mass, we go to heaven. We don't have to die in order to go to heaven. We just have to open the eyes of faith and see that angels and saints surround us in the visions of John that constitute the Apocalypse. And actually, there is a kind of narrative arc from the Lamb's Supper, and I suppose from Rome's Sweet Home, all the way to this book, my most recent. And why? Well, because, you know, 37 years ago, I converted. 30 years ago, we wrote Rome's Sweet Home. But deep down, we've known all along that Steubenville is not our final home, nor is Rome. These are earthly outposts. And so to rediscover the fact that we are pilgrims, that heaven alone is our home, I mean, how many times have we prayed the Our Father? Well, if God is our Father, obviously we're His family. But if our Father is in heaven, then no matter what we put on our return address, you know, there is a sense in which we are wayfarers, we are sojourners, we are pilgrims. And that doesn't in any way diminish the joy. If anything, it makes us freer, it makes us more fearless. And how that works in Scripture, how that unfolds throughout salvation history, is the point of this book. And of all of the books that I've written, say, in the last 10 or 15 years, I, was, I, I would say that this is probably the one that I needed the most, and that others have, too. It's only been out, out now two or three weeks. I have gotten such feedback from people who are saying, you know, raising a family in this kind of culture, gathering as a family around the dinner table, and just recognizing the fact that this is so hyper-secularized Nobody imagined. And you have a temptation, I suppose, everyone does, but especially Catholics, to long for the 50s, you know, in a nostalgic 
sort of move. You know, when Fulton Sheen was on TV winning Emmys and Bing Crosby was looking forward to playing a Catholic priest in the Bells of St. Mary or whatever. And that's understandable, but it's entirely impractical. It's unfruitful. And it really, I think, alienates us not only from the world around us, but from our own family as well, especially our kids who've never experienced that sort of thing. And so we have to avoid anger, anxiety, and sadness on the one hand. We also have to avoid that nostalgia where we're pining away for the days before it all went south, you know, the preconciliar for some people and all of the rest. And this is where we find a map. We, we call it the Jeremiah option. Jeremiah was the prophet of the exile. He was there before, during, and after the Jews went into Babylonian captivity. And while a lot of false prophets were giving what we might call fake news to the people of God, Jeremiah was giving the truth. And it was hard, but at the same time, it proved to be helpful. And we use Jeremiah 29 as a sort of base, a headquarters. And a lot of people have verse 11 as one of their favorite life verses where the Lord says through the prophet, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me. And that that is the point, that you can find joy and hope in the context of exile, but only if you do what the Lord prescribes. And Jeremiah sets it out in this letter. And what's so in What's so important to recognize is that verse 11 comes at the climax of the oracle of the prophet, the word of the Lord, giving seven steps. The first step is build houses. In other words, you wake up and you're in Babylon and you realize you're captive, you're in exile. What do you do? Well, you don't just give in to despair. You build a house. You settle down. You begin to bear witness to your faith. Secondly, you plant gardens and eat the produce. In other words, you've got to recognize that this is where God has you for a purpose, even if you don't understand it. Third, take wives for your children and have children. You know, and so the absolute priority of the family emerges in the third step. The fourth step is take wives and for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. In other words, you're thinking now not only in terms of my family, but a kind of intergenerational continuity. Catholics don't want to end up just thinking in terms of election cycles. We're Americans, so I understand that, but we're Catholics, and so we think in terms of two or three or four generations. We're not just planting a fall crop to have food in the winter. We're planting forests to have the lumber to build the houses for our children, for our grandchildren, and all the rest. And then number five is multiply there and don't decrease. In other words, spread out and recognize that the Lord can bless you anywhere. All of the idolatrous peoples, all of the pagan nations surrounding Israel believe that, well, we have a God, a national God, but if we're ever uprooted, our God is basically now separated from us. What Jeremiah is showing is that the people of God who are in the midst of exile are actually receiving greater blessings than the ones who fancy themselves in comfort back in Jerusalem because they haven't been deported yet. So multiply there. The sixth is seek the welfare of the city, not just your own family. Don't be a closed circle. Be an open circle and, and, and seek to spread, the Hebrew word is shalom, to the entire city. But wait a minute. It's in Babylon, not Israel. 
It's Babylon itself, not Jerusalem. No, God has you there to bear witness. And of course, the seventh one is pray to the Lord, not only on behalf of your family that it goes through trials, but also pray for the city where the Lord your God has driven you. And it's it's called the diaspora for a reason. I mean, diaspora is translated as dispersion. They're dispersed. But it's the Greek word for scattering, but it's also the Greek word for sowing seed. And so in the parable of the, the sower and the seed, he scatters the seed, but we are that seed carrying the gospel. And I think it's important to realize that, okay, we're in exile. There's a punitive aspect to this. You know, well, does God really punish his people? Well, do I punish my kids? Yeah, I mean, hopefully not in anger, but I do punish my kids, but I don't punish my kids to get back at them. I punish them to get them back to me and back to their senses. And that's the centrality of the covenant, most especially in Jeremiah. No prophet speaks of the covenant more than Jeremiah, and he speaks of it in terms of this sacred family bond. It's more than a social contract. It really is something that encompasses all of us and all of our loved ones, but even our captors, the Babylonians. And so this, I think, is the key. And, you know, since we're on Covenant Radio together, I think context is so often the key, but the context of the covenant is often overlooked. It just seems to many people to be like religious jargon. You know, so if I tell a lie, well, that's a sin, probably I should confess it. But if I happen to tell a lie in the context of a courtroom, in the witness stand, that's more than a sin. That's a crime. That's a perjury. Context is the key. And likewise, if I decide to take two or three days off, and then suddenly I'm in handcuffs, why? Because I'm in the Navy. I went AWOL. I'm absent without leave. You can't just do that. You've got to figure out what context are we in. Well, the covenant for the people of God is this sacred family that is extended but at the same time, God the Father isn't just unconditionally loving us as we are. He's loving us in order to make us what we should be. And I mean, in a certain sense, this is not rocket science. This is not advanced theology. This is nothing more than sanctified common sense. But I think it's so often the case that we've got to realize that we are in a covenant in a way that is invisible, it's not something that the world acknowledges. It's not something that we have reinforced from our culture. So we've got to wake up and pray the morning offering and renew the covenant by consecrating ourselves to the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and to the whole family of God. And I, I think what we do in the book, after sort of laying this foundation we call the Jeremiah option, is some of the most practical advice that people will find. And really helpful as well. I, I must admit, working with Brandon McGinley on this book has really proven to be something of a breakthrough for me. I mean, this is the third in a trilogy. I was working on a book that you and I discussed a while back called The First Society, The Sacrament of Matrimony and the Restoration of the Social Order. We're focusing on the covenant of marriage. We recognize that more than who we vote for, the way we live out our sacred covenant that is marriage, that is going to bring more change, more transformation to our culture than practically anything else that you and I do. I mean, 
except for dad jokes, of course. Well, you know, we, we, we can't forget the dad jokes. They're a necessary part of raising a <laughs> joyful family. Unless you ask my daughters, then they will say, Dad, please stop. And I, I love how my son grins. He won't laugh out loud, but he'll grin, and I'll know I've got him. Uh, Dr. Han, as you say some of this, it reminds me of a time in my life when I was very young. Um, you know, I, I, I had a moment of bitterness, that a, a prolonged moment of bitterness, when my little brother came into the world. I had my own room. My older brother had his own room. And all of a sudden, Mom and Dad said, nope, you have to share a room with your older brother, and, and the baby will get the nursery, and that's how it's going to be. But one day, you'll get your room back. And without warning, we're out working in the yard, and my older brother disappears, and Mom and Dad and I come back into the house, and he has taken it upon himself to move my little brother into the room with me and take a bedroom for himself. And to, to say that I protested would be to put it mildly, but... In my childishness, one of the things I did, we had an unfinished basement. I said, well, you know, if we can just decide where we're going to live, I'm moving down to the basement where we had a carpet scrap laid out on the floor, my dad's old black and white television from the early 1970s from his first apartment. And I thought, you know, I'm going to live in the life of luxury down here. Uh, My parents knew how ridiculous it was. But rather than say, no, son, you're not doing that. We're bringing you upstairs. You have no choice in the matter. They said, okay. You want to live downstairs? Live downstairs. I think I made it about four hours into the first night, and the furnace kept kicking on, and I was scared, and I said, this isn't worth it, and I went up to the room with my little brother, and I was back. And they knew. They knew precisely that that's what my reaction was going to be, and so they let me, I I, I guess you could say, go into my self-imposed exile into the basement knowing that I would want to come back home. Is that kind of uh, is that a decent analogy for, for what God has done with his chosen people over the millennia that, you know, we, we fall out of covenant with him. We say, oh, we've got our own way. It's a better way. We're going to do what, what we're going to do. And he says, okay, I'm going to let you do that to help you recognize how much you need me and how much you want to come back to me. You know, in our tradition, Jeremiah is a canonized saint. And St. Jeremiah is up in heaven saying, Amen, Adam. (laughs) Because what the Lord does is so often cryptic to us. It's mysterious, but it really is fatherly wisdom. And what your parents did there, you know, it's sort of like God gives us these commandments for what? His ego? His pride? No. For our good. He knows us better than we know ourselves, and he loves us probably more than we love ourselves and our loved ones. And so, The commandments of the covenant have a certain logic, which is love. You know, that's why Jesus says the highest commandment is Deuteronomy 6.5. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so love is demanding, and we don't like the sacrifices that love calls forth. And so we want to do things our way. And God has given us free will. He's also given us the law of the covenant, the law of his own love. But there's a sense in which you have to let people have their own way in order for them to recognize how stupid it is. And then they begin to discover, you know what? God's way was always much wiser, and the welfare of keeping the covenant, of fulfilling the commandments, of being faithful to my spouse, faithful to my family, faithful to these challenges, even though the world says, that is not freedom, that is bondage. You've got to be free from any of these commitments that are imposed from outside of you. And yet at the same time, what we discover is that it's freedom. You know, the the train that decides to freely jump the tracks is not more free. 
it's derailed, or, or the fish that jumps out of the, the aquarium is not exercising freedom once he lands on the carpet. He's dying. And so Jeremiah really exposes that the logic of God's new covenant with us, he's the only prophet who even speaks of the new covenant back in the old. This is something, we hear it so often, we're sort of tempted like kids who hear it from their parents to say, yeah, yeah, yada, yada. But when we look back on it, we realize, you know what, the basement seemed to be better, but it really was a terrible place to, to fall asleep and stay that way. I cannot second that uh, for any child listening right now that thinks I'm going to go live in the unfinished basement. Think that through. Don't, don't put yourself in that exile. Uh, Dr. Han, there are a number of folks you, you bring up in this book, and you know we've been talking about Jeremiah, but you bring Cardinal Newman into the equation, Cardinal Wazinski. Especially with Cardinal Wazinski, you talk about in that chapter uh, longanimity. And I was wondering if we could go to that for a moment, because there's some great lessons in the model that he is for us today, and uh, especially when we talk about hope. You know, most people don't even know who Cardinal Stefan Wojcicki is, but everybody knows who Pope St. John Paul II is. We'll put it this way. There would not have been a Pope St. John Paul if there hadn't been a Cardinal Wojcicki, and the first person to second that motion would be John Paul himself. Longanimity is this virtue. I mean, we sometimes translate this as uh, long-suffering or perseverance or patience. But it really is something that is embedded in our hearts and our spirits, where we have a lasting endeavor in pursuit of a good that is distant and difficult. We often describe this in terms of the virtue of hope, but hope requires a certain endurance because we're not running a sprint. It's clearly a marathon. It's not over and done in a day. And so day after day, you have back-to-back-to-back marathons. And it's easy to give up. It's easy to just kind of go with the flow. But I think what we have in Wyszynski's work, and I mean, it's not just his writings. I mean, this was a man who endured the Russians uh, before Second World War. He then also endured the Nazi occupation after the Blitzkrieg. He didn't just endure the Soviets and be imprisoned by them. You'll discover that when he became the Bishop of Lublin in 1946, He was leading the Polish Catholics from despair into a kind of hope, into longanimity. When he became primate of Poland in 1949, the Soviets realized, man, we are up against someone who is indomitable. So they imprisoned him, I think from 55 to about 56 for a year or two, and he only came out stronger. And the Polish Catholic population could see it. So could Karol Wojtyla when he became Father Wojtyla when he became bishop, when he became Pope St. John Paul II. And you see his treatment of longanimity rooted in prayer in the interior life, where you come to God and you speak to God from the heart. With the psalmist, you're not afraid to thank him in the midst of hardship, but even more, you're not afraid to complain to him. Something like 40% of the 150 psalms are called psalms of complaint. And the reason is because you don't complain to someone unless you trust them and you believe that they can make a difference, like my kids think about me. And so praying like a child is the start, it's the beginning, it's the fountainhead. And then working, going from prayer to work, working hard, doing the best work you can, offering that as a sacrifice, assisting your co-workers. And so we had these clandestine seminaries where the seminarians were working in factories, 
but you have Cardinal Wyszynski not just writing, not just teaching, but living these hardships in a way that's like gold refined in the furnace. Many other people would have been giving up. In fact, many did. But when they saw his example, and when they read his wisdom, and some of it, a lot of it is translated, you know, uh, we, we cite a fair bit, in, especially in the last three chapters or so, I am convinced that rediscovering the uh, the example, the inspiring work of Stefan Wyszynski will do for us what it did for John Paul, as well as his fellow Polish Catholics. It gives you a bright light in the midst of darkness, but it also gives you the practical steps to stick to it and to encourage other people and to really produce work that is better than those who have given up or those who've caved in to the pagan powers. But I mean, you think about the other countries that came under the Nazis, that came under the Soviets, and most of them were crushed. But Poland came out stronger, and God uses that even now. And so when we think about what it means to raise our families in exile, what it means to go to work in exile, how do we pray? How do we go through rush hour? How do we work with pagan co-workers? And how do we relate to other people? Friendship is another, is another essential part of this that he spoke of. And, you know, it, it, it's tempting to kind of become what I call Amish Catholics, that is, to close the circle, to gather the wagons, and to just simply live in a way that is private and exclusive. Well, that's really not an option. It's not come ye, it's go ye and make disciples of all nations. And so I think the important, you know, the important lesson for us in all of this is what the Jeremiah option spells out. And that is, God has us right where he wants us, right where we need to be. And the other thing, I mean, this is sort of the overarching mystery, that even if we weren't considering ourselves in exile, even if the Jews were walking up to Zion, singing the Psalms of Ascent, getting ready to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles in the seventh month for seven days of family vacation, what the prophets are saying is this, you're still in exile, even if you're in the earthly Jerusalem. Even if you're walking into this temple that is made by human hands, you were made for more than this. You were made for a heavenly Jerusalem. You were made for a temple not made with hands. And this is why we also draw so much from the map of Hebrews 11. Uh, this is known as the Hall of Faith. You know, it really goes through all of the saints in the Old Testament, from Abel through Noah to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to Joshua, and the prophets and the kings who were righteous. And over and over again, what we hear is what Abraham learned. Abraham looked forward to the city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. And likewise, the other saints who came later than Abraham, as it was, they desired a better country, a heavenly one, for God has prepared for them a city. So whatever city we live in, whether it's Jerusalem or Steubenville or St. Louis, what we want to do is create heavenly outposts here that resemble our final destiny, our home in heaven. And so the prophets also disclose this mystery, that the temple in heaven, what Jesus calls our Father's house, is the blueprint for whatever we do on earth, so that we'll always remember that we're sojourners, we're pilgrims, we're not home yet. But on the other hand, we don't have to wait to die in order to get home. All we've got to do is pray, celebrate the Mass, prepare our family for the sacraments, and 
to wake up and realize this is more than just Catholic doctrine. This is more than religious rhetoric. This is more than pious hyperbole. This is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth that we profess, which we call the Catholic faith. And if we walk by faith and not by sight, we'll realize that no matter where we are, if we're in Rome or if we're in Jerusalem, these are wonderful places. But when we get back home, we recognize that we have dual citizenship, not just America, but in heaven. Paul told the Philippians, our commonwealth is in heaven. And he used the technical legal term polytuma, our citizenship is in heaven. But that didn't mean ignore Philippi. No, the Philippians were to sanctify their work, their own families, their neighbors as well. And so it's sort of like when God has us where he wants us, it might not be where we want to be, but it ends up proving to be a much better place than what we wanted for ourselves. One of the themes that you bring up in the book in chapter 13, and I love the title of this chapter, Come to Me, and you you speak about rest. Um, You and Brandon speak about rest in this chapter. And as someone who loves going on trips but absolutely hates driving, this was resonating with me because as much as, you know, say the drive to Hansville from St. Louis to uh, the Birmingham area is about eight hours. uh, And about three hours in, I was ready to say, okay, can we we stop and maybe just – take an hour. Uh, we, we pressed on. I, I slept in the passenger seat at that point, got out of the driver's seat. But I don't do well on road trips because I get tired and I, I feel like I can't go on. And I was I, I love this example that you give about the preschooler who just goes from activity to activity to activity to activity and then passes out. You know, And it reminded me of my son when he was a preschooler who used to say, I'm not tired, I'm not tired, I'm, and then he's out. You know, um, we have this daily living and it it can seem never ending. I mean, I'm looking at my desk and my calendar and I've got, you know, two different doctors I need to call for the kids today. I need to follow up on some financial paperwork. I need to follow up on some insurance paperwork. And that's just today and tomorrow. There will be other things. And the day after that, more and more. And I I bring all of this up to ask about that importance of rest as we are on this journey, because I I have a feeling that if we were just trying to act like that preschooler and just nonstop go, 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 go until we get to the promised land, God willing, uh, we're going to have a very big burnout and the consequences could be catastrophic. Yeah. And, you know, in exile here in America, it is so easy to fall into that temptation the trap of workaholism, where we just feel like, you know, we're behind. We could work 24-7 and wake up, you know, a month later, and we would still feel behind. We're like those kids, the little ones, who just go and go and go until we drop. Well, we don't have to wait until we drop. As you mentioned, chapter 13, you know, come to me. And really the last three chapters are all about what it means to experience not only eternal rest when we get home, but above all, Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Well, that would be me. That would be you. That would probably be all of us. I mean, we really just feel weighed down, and not just by the tasks on our to-do list, but also by the circumstances. You know, Stephen Covey makes a distinction between the sphere of concern, which is so broad. I mean, there's so much to be concerned about in Israel, and Gaza, in the Vatican, in America, in D.C., But then you distinguish that from the sphere of influence. What difference can I make? Well, I can't change the White House. I can't change Hamas, but I can change my own heart, my own family. I can live out my marriage. You know, 
And this is what Christ is promising us. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Those are the last three chapters. And what we have are, again, personal examples, practical advice on how it is we can pace ourselves prayerfully, but also end up being far more productive. You know, back in World War II, when the munition factories were working round the clock, they actually weren't making the quotas. After the war, they discovered that only the factories that consistently gave their workers a day off, one in seven, is Sabbath principle is the rhythm of life. It's also the sign of the covenant. We need rest. We need the Lord's Day. We need Mass, not just for one hour a week, but one day. And so we can use our imaginations as, as husbands, as fathers, what we can do besides, you know, just watching the NFL, what we can do as families what we can do to prepare for Mass, or what we can do in maybe praying a decade of the rosary after lunch, and just come up with things, go to the park, go on a drive, create memories, making memories that go beyond the work enable us to get back to work, and then anticipate that little slice of heaven that we call the Lord's Day. It's amazing to me how God and his providence, and I, I suppose we'll never cease to be amazed by God and his providence if we uh, keep to our life of faith. You know, he knew this. Going back to that image of my parents saying, we know you're going to come up from the basement. He knew that we were going to need this rest. He put it in the Ten Commandments that he gave to Moses while they were in exile. And it reminds me of that stop on the way back from our drive to Birmingham where I said, listen, if we can just stop for 10 minutes and I can get a cup of coffee I'll be good to go. And then we drove the the remaining three hours nonstop. We made it all the way home. It was a great drive. And uh, our Lord, he gives us that, he says, every Sunday. And in fact, if you need, if you need a, a rest stop every day, daily Mass is available. He makes himself available so humbly in the Blessed Sacrament in what appears to be a small piece of bread. Our Lord resides in chapels all around the world waiting for us to come and just say, okay, you, you need a quick break? Come and spend some time with me, and and I will give you that rest. And by the way, what you experience here, similar to that 20 minutes I spent in the Shrine Church down in Hansville, it's just a taste of the rest that is to come when we finally, as we say, God willing, make it home. Right. You know, another favorite chapter of mine, back to chapter 3, the Exodus as liturgical pilgrimage, where Brandon and I reflect upon what it's like, you know, raising a family, especially when you have small kids. And you have a summer vacation down by the shore, which is like anywhere from 8 to 11 hours away. And sure enough, it's always the case that in the first hour, the littlest kid always asks, are we there yet? You know, and by the second and third hours, even the other kids are saying, how close are we? Are we there yet? And, you know, you might be frustrated. You might even be tempted to strangle them, just tell them to be quiet and all of the rest. But you remember as a kid the same kind of thing. You know, so this line of, oh, getting there is half the fun, it doesn't work that way. But there are ways to kind of punctuate pilgrimages so that you can pull over for coffee. You can also stop by for Mass. You can also just make a visit to the Blessed Sacrament on your way home from work. And these islands of grace end up not just giving us back our breath and our perspective, but they also permeate. Like leaven in the bread, they end up pervading our work and our conversations with our co-workers, our boss, and this sort of thing. You know, the overarching circle of life is the covenant. That is a family that shows us this world is really a place of pilgrimage 
But then all of the contractual obligations that we have in this world must be subsumed so that I, I don't take my colleagues or my own investments more important than my bride or my kids or our grandkids. You have to put our, you know, you have to identify your priorities. I know of so many men who have succeeded in work beyond their dreams, you know, in terms of money, in terms of fame and that sort of thing. But when you get back home and it's broken, that success just doesn't matter at all. So, you know, this book is designed to help us find a way to really make things matter. The things that matter most, put first things first and do it in a way that is consistent. Do it in a way that is also mutual. So you're not just imposing some sort of regime upon your kids. You know, I remember reading when I was younger in Reader's Digest, the definition of diplomacy is the art of letting someone else have your way. Well, in that case, God is a consummate diplomat. He lets us have our way until we want his. But I think we also have to recognize that we don't give our kids their freedom. God did. And so we recognize that freedom. We respect that freedom. We encourage them to use that freedom. You know, and so I look at our six kids and our 21 grandkids, and especially our fourth child, Father Jeremiah, and, I mean, words fail to express the gratitude the thanksgiving that we feel, but I honestly have to say that I cannot take the credit. I blame God. I blame the Catholic faith. You know, the sacraments, these are the things that didn't make it easy. They made it possible, and sometimes it's just barely possible. But it, it gives us that kind of hope. I've never, ever been an optimist. Nobody who knows me would ever describe me as an optimist. But I think anybody who gets close will realize, nonetheless, you know, he's hope-filled. And so I, I really do sustain a hope through prayer. You know, what else do we have but God, and how else can we feel but hope-filled? You know, I don't, I must admit, you know, I don't have a lot of confidence in the leadership that we see all around us in the world and sometimes even in the Church. But ultimately, these leaders are like signs that point to Christ, and Christ is, is you know— Okay, we had Pope St. John Paul II, and my favorite Pope Benedict, because I'd studied his theology for so many years. And now I love Pope Francis and pray for him as well. But Jesus is never saying to us, follow them. He's saying, follow me and learn from them, pray for them, because they've got a hard task. And we know what that's like as husbands and fathers to have that burden of authority and leadership. But ultimately, the Pope is not the head of the Church. Christ is. The Pope is the vicar of Christ. And some days it's really great, other days it might not be. But the fact is, it's always about the one, the only one, who is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, and he really wants to be, in practical ways, the Lord of our lives and the Lord of our, our families. I'd like to wrap up with this, and uh, anyone from St. Louis, or anyone who's ever been to St. Louis knows we have this beautiful, well, I guess that could be debatable, but we have this gateway arch on our riverfront. I love it. I love seeing the arch. I love I seeing the riverfront. Uh, we're part-time parishioners at the old cathedral, which is right on the the, the base of the arch grounds, and uh, every time we go to Mass at the old cathedral, our kids who have seen the arch probably hundreds of times, I see the arch, I see the arch. But coming back, especially from a long journey when you see the arch, whether it's from the car window or the plane window, you say, all right, I know I'm almost home. After all of this traveling, after all of these hours on the road, I know 
that I'm almost home. And there's a joy in that. And even going on the journey, whether it's to Birmingham or to, you know, I'm going up to Springfield, Illinois soon, uh, wherever it may be, I always have my GPS on and I love watching the map and I love seeing the distance towards destination just count down and get closer and closer and closer to knowing, all right, I'm about to reach my destination. I wish it were that way, Dr. Han, with this earthly pilgrimage. I wish I could know that, Adam, this is how many days you have, and here's the best way to make the most of them, and this is exactly the moment. But as the scriptures tell us, uh, we don't know the day, we don't know the hour, we have to be prepared as if a thief could come in the night. And I used to think, especially in my early 20s when I was involved in youth ministry, that I was so smart, I was so brilliant, I know the way, let me show you the way, I'm going to tell you how to get to heaven. <laughs> now that I'm in my 40s, I'm like, okay, let me get out of your way here. I, I, I might have some useful suggestions at best. Um, and you share this poem, you and Brandon share this poem from one of my favorite saints, St. Saint John Henry Cardinal Newman, Lead Kindly oh, yeah. Light. and. Every year, especially at Advent, even though it's not explicitly an Advent poem, I, I, I go back to this poem, and I'd like to, to read it for our listeners here. Lead kindly light amid the encircling gloom, lead thou me on. The night is dark, and I am far from home, lead thou me on. Keep thou my feet, I do not ask to see the distant scene. One step is enough for me. And, and I love in the beauty of that imagery that sometimes we might get so preoccupied with what's the final destination going to be like. Um, I, I share with one of our regular priest contributors that our dining room table has turned into the Wright Institute of Theological Discourse where the kids are asking, Dad, what's heaven look like? Are, are you in the clouds in heaven? Are there, are there houses in heaven? What are the rooms? And all sorts of questions. And this poem is such a great reminder. You know what? It's good to meditate upon those things. It's good to think about those things. But first and foremost right now, let's focus on today. Let's focus on today's step. And let's remember that even today's step, as small as it may or may not be in the grand scheme of the map, today's step is only possible with God's grace. So let's ask for the grace we need to be that husband, father, grandfather, mother, sister, daughter, aunt, uncle, uh, priest, religious, whatever our vocation is in life, let's ask for that grace to get through this step that's right before us in this moment. Oh, amen, Adam. Dear brother, thank you for reading uh, St. John Henry Newman's Lead Kindly Light. And I I must admit that uh, I love that poem every bit as much. I'm also reminded of St. Catherine of Siena. I'll paraphrase her. You know, all the way to heaven is heaven, because we're with Christ. We don't see him face to face just yet, but we will. But he's closer to us than we are to ourselves and to our loved ones. And let the Lord just be what he is, who he is in our lives this day. And even the failures are going to end up proving and just convincing us that God is fulfilling his purpose in our lives his strength will be made perfect, even in our weakness. 
two beautiful, beautiful saints with great words for us to reflect upon as we draw to a close. The book is Catholics in Exile, Biblical Wisdom for the Journey Home by Scott Hahn and Brandon McGinley. It's available through Emmaus Road Publishing. You can visit stpaulcenter.com, and it's easy to find the Emmaus Road Publishing link on the St. Paul Center's homepage. Again, that's stpaulcenter, stpaulcenter.com, where, by the way, Dr. Hahn, I've been following the progress. There are some exciting things happening out there, a lot of building, a lot of experience. Expansion. Uh, speaking of homes, you're about to get a new one for the St. Paul Center, if, if I uh, am following the news correctly. That's right. Our headquarters is nearly complete. But before I mention this anymore, I should I should just kind of add parenthetically that if uh, our, our listeners go to the website to order the book, they can punch in a coupon code, EXILE20, and they'll get 20% off. And at least for the time being, for the next few weeks, we're going to be sending out some of the 500-plus signed copies that I sat down and personally signed last week. And so there's that. But this, uh, this headquarters, it is so amazing. For 22 years, the St. Paul Center has been promoting, you know, biblical literacy for Catholic laypeople, biblical fluency for our clergy and our educators, but always in four or five locations, one on campus, but now Across from the University of Steubenville, we have two acres. The building is nearly complete, 25,000 square feet for our 50-plus full-time workers, and we've got nearly a dozen part-time student interns and this sort of thing. Never in my wildest dreams did I picture anything quite like the headquarters, about 95% done. Probably by the end of November, it'll be complete. We're going to have a grand opening near the beginning of 2024. So consider all of yourselves to be (laughs) personally invited. If you're anywhere near Steubenville, please stop in. We've got a lot of exciting icons and books and things to show you. And uh, I think you can really end up feeling like you're a a partner in this amazing project that we've been working on. So uh, with such gratitude, such excitement. It is exciting, and I, I, I do hope to get out to Steubenville to visit that. I love the times. I've loved the times in my life that my, my journeys have taken me to Steubenville. It was always my favorite halfway point on the journey out to Washington, D.C. for the March for Life, uh, going out early on the advance team for our, our youth conferences and saying, I, I know some friends in Steubenville. We're going to stay overnight there to go to Mass at the university and, and to pray with the students was always a tremendous gift. So I, I look forward to that opportunity. Again, uh, if you'd like to learn more about the St. Paul Center, you can visit stpaulcenter.com, and you can click on Emmaus Road Publishing to order the book Catholics in Exile, and that code was EXILE20 uh, that you can enter at checkout for that as well. Dr. Hahn, it is always a joy to speak with you, and thank you so much for your time today. You're so welcome, Adam. Thank you for your time, for your hospitality, and just keep up the great work. You're listening to Roadmap to Heaven here on Covenant Network. We're going to take a break. We will be back after this. Consecration to Mary. My queen and my mother, I give myself entirely to you. And to show my devotion to you, I consecrate to you this day my eyes, my ears, my mouth, my heart, my whole being without reserve. Wherefore, good mother, as I am your own, Keep me, guard me, as your property and possession. Amen. Are you enjoying this podcast? 
Well, if you are, did you know that Covenant Network offers great programming 24 hours a day on 43 stations in five states, plus streaming online? You can find our schedule, your local station, or listen online at www.ourcatholicradio.org. That's O-U-R-catholicradio.org. Visit us today. And now back to this podcast. Well, after last week's inspiration of the lives of saints who were children on the Daily Dose of Encouragement, I can't wait to find out where we will go this week on the Daily Dose. And with us, as always, is Patty Schneier. Well, this week actually is a continuation, in a sense, of last week, because on Friday, I talked about Blessed Carlo Acutis and his amazing exhibit of the Eucharistic Miracles. So I found myself just pouring over this website. And after learning about him, I was spending hours looking at the document that he created, which is the Eucharistic Miracles of the World. It was fascinating. So this week, we're going to unpack some Eucharistic Miracles. And I want to encourage you, all of you, just Google Carlo Acutis Eucharistic Miracles, and you will find this website. Since his death in 2006, recent Eucharistic miracles have been added to it. So there are even some more modern ones. But this week, I want to share with you the incredible facts about just a few of these miracles. Why is this important? First of all, because we must all be ready at any moment to give a reason for our hope, our faith, and our devotion to our Eucharistic Lord. And sometimes we need to meet people where they are. And many people today are science-based. So here is where faith meets science, because science has proven these are miracles. Secondly, this is a testimony of the universality of our faith. These miracles have occurred all over the world. Third reason why we need to know about these Eucharistic miracles. This is part of church history, and we need to know our history. So this week, We're all going to learn something, and I've learned a lot by researching it. So today, let's start with the most famous, Lanciano. It's the first recorded Eucharistic miracle. It happened in Italy in the year 750 A.D. It's the first recorded and the greatest Eucharistic miracle of the Catholic Church. It happened in a little church called St. Lengantian. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. As a divine response to a monk who doubted about Jesus' real presence in the Eucharist. During Mass, after the consecration, the host was changed into live flesh, and the wine was changed into live blood, which coagulated into five globules, irregular and different in shape and size. The host flesh, as can be very distinctly observed today, has the same dimensions as the large host we use today in the Latin church. It is light brown, and it appears rose-colored when lighted from the back. The blood is coagulated and has an earthy color resembling yellow, okay? So various investigations have been conducted since 1574 and again in 1981. And there were these huge scientific analysis that were done, and here's what they found out. Number one, the miraculous flesh is real flesh. Number two, the miraculous blood is real blood. Number three, the flesh and blood are human, and both belong to the same blood type, A-B, the same blood type that was found on the Shroud of Turin, and it's the most common type of blood of Middle Eastern population. Number four, the flesh consists of muscular tissue of the heart. Specifically noted, 
where the myocardium, the endocardium, the vagus nerve, and also the left ventricle of the heart. Number five, in the blood, there were found proteins of the same proportion as are found in the makeup of fresh, normal blood. And in the blood were also found normal minerals, chlorides, phosphorus, all of these things. The preservation of the flesh and of the blood, which were left in their natural state for 12 centuries, 12 centuries, and exposed to the action of atmospheric and biological agents remains an extraordinary phenomenon. Number six, it was verified that the fragments taken from Lanciano could no way be likened to embalmed tissue. There was no embalming done. Also, the commission declared it to be living tissue because it responded rapidly to all the clinical reactions distinctive of a living being. So in summarizing this scientific work, a medical commission of the World Health Organization and the United Nations, this is huge, published in 1996 in New York and in Geneva, declared the following. Science, aware of its limits, has come to a halt face-to-face with the impossibility of giving an explanation. I am in total awe of this Eucharistic miracle. The flesh and blood of Lanciano are just the same as they would be if they had been drawn that very day from a living being. And the fact that this is preserved for 1,293 years is absolutely mind-boggling. Know the story of the Eucharistic miracle of Lanciano. I love when science meets faith, and I have a feeling we're going to encounter that quite a bit this week on the Daily Dose of Encouragement. Patty, thank you for this lesson. If the Eucharist is just a meal, then Calvary is just an execution. That was the point of a talk from Dr. Scott Hahn at the Eucharistic Congress in Springfield on Saturday, and uh, a great talk it was, reminding us that, it, you know, when we go to Mass, we're, we're not just celebrating a symbol. We're not just remembering something nice, that we're celebrating a new Passover sacrifice that began at the Lord's Supper and culminated in the passion, death, and death of our Lord and resurrection on Good Friday into Easter, the whole events of the Paschal Mystery. There's a lot to ponder there. By the way, if you enjoyed our interview with Dr. Scott Hahn this morning here on the show, there's actually a lot more to that interview. We recorded that last week to accommodate Dr. Hahn's schedule, and uh, there was so much goodness in it. It it was hard to pick just a, a chunk to share with you on the radio this morning. So I would say this, go to our podcast, the Roadmap to Heaven podcast, where you can hear the entire interview. It's about 40 minutes long. It's it's a good conversation. I, I shouldn't say conversation. Dr. Han does most of the talking, and I just sit there in awe of what he shares and uh, ready to soak it all up. I'm sure you will be too. You can find the Roadmap to Heaven podcast on your favorite podcast app, including Spotify, TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Play, wherever you go. Or if you don't have a favorite podcast player and you're like, Adam, I don't want to look for one. I just want to cut to the chase. I want to get right there. Go to our website, ourcatholicradio.org, and click on Programs up at the top or in the menu, and it'll take you to the Roadmap to Heaven page, and you'll find it there. And you can play it right there from our webpage as well. So that's uh, one place to look for that. We've got some other great content there for you. Um, Father Wade Menezes is going to be on the show 
tomorrow, we're going to be talking about what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? Perhaps you caught Father Wade talking a little bit about this on Open Line last week, and uh, we were able to grab an interview with him before he even spoke about that on Open Line. So what are you afraid of and are sin and hell on that list? We'll find out. You're going to have to tune in tomorrow for that as well. Uh, You know, one of the other there were so many things at this Eucharistic Congress. I, 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 I couldn't keep up taking notes. There were so many great things being said. Father Chase Elgenbrink, one of the speakers, was talking about how um, it's so important. Uh, it's so important to keep our Lord and the Eucharist at the heart of our daily living. And he's, he made a comment um, that he said, marriages that have been in trouble where the spouses go to our Lord in the Eucharist with devotion and frequency have been saved. And I mention that because I think that's applicable to pretty much any area in life where there might be despair or there might be trouble. Go to our Lord. Go to our Lord in the sacraments, most especially the Most Holy Eucharist, also the Sacrament of Reconciliation. Um, you know, here, here's the deal. You cannot receive our Lord in Holy Communion if you're in a state of grave sin. And he opens the door for you to come back into that state of grace through a beautiful sacrament, the Sacrament of Reconciliation. You know, there were folks waiting in line for an hour to have their their confessions heard on Saturday. And it it was beautiful. It was beautiful. So don't hold back. This weekend's a great call for us because with First Friday and First Saturday devotions, in the First Saturday devotion, the Blessed Mother asks us to make a good confession as part of that devotion. It's one of the requirements. So Go. Uh, And that's a good reminder for us, too, that Friday is the first Friday, so we'll have our Sacred Heart devotions. We'll go to Mass. We'll pray in reparation for sins against the Sacred Heart. Spend some time in prayer. uh, Receive our Lord in Holy Communion. And and what a great thing it is to spend that time with Him just to make up, to, to offer that reparation for those who have hurt our Lord who have sinned against Him. And then on first Saturday, to go to Mass, go to confession, go to Mass, receive our Lord in Holy Communion, pray the Rosary, and meditate for 15 minutes upon the mysteries of the Rosary. It's all going to help us with our Eucharistic revival in our own hearts. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Mary, Mother of the Eucharist, pray for us. St. Joseph, terror of demons, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. For Covenant Network, I'm Adam Wright. Thanks for listening to Roadmap to Heaven this morning. Don't forget to pray your rosary today.